Welcome back to the Bama Online Podcast. This one, Wednesday, February the 2nd, 2022. Travis Dreyer, Senior Analyst for BamaOnline.com. With you back on the show, apologize in advance for the nasally the nasally tone today. I've got some type of hay fever or sinus infection going on. Who knows these days, right? With this Omicron virus out there uh, rolling around like the aforementioned, but feeling okay, just not sounding all that great. And I know, right? Smart guy, smart gal. How's that different than any of the podcasts I do here? on the BOL podcast, but we certainly appreciate you joining us here on the pod. And if you haven't already, how about a subscription to the Bama online podcast? Simple as a click or two. And if you'd leave us a rating and a review while you're there, we would certainly appreciate it. A lot to get into on this Wednesday edition of the Bama online podcast. We're going to have some Alabama men's hoops. We're going to have some Alabama football, touch on a little bit of Alabama football recruiting and uh, just kind of cover some things, get through some things, and then we're going to have some more fun later in the show as we delve back into the top position rooms, one through six of the Nick Saban era at Alabama where national championship teams are concerned. Today, we're going to go behind center and talk about quarterbacks, so that'll be a lot of fun later in the program. First, though, Alabama men's basketball down at Auburn on Tuesday night. Coming off the big win, Alabama was over Baylor in the Big 12 SEC Challenge. Not to be on a Tuesday night at Auburn Arena for the Crimson Tide. Auburn wins 100. Bust the clock with a walk-on and one, no less, there late in the game. 100-81, to Auburn gets the win. What we'll do in sort of recapping, revisiting the game, we'll go through the three predictions I had for Alabama-Auburn 2 on Tuesday there at the website, BamaOnline.com. Prediction number one was that Walker Kessler would play more than 12 minutes. The Auburn Post, the North Carolina transfer in the first meeting with Alabama, ran into early foul trouble, actually fouled out eventually in that game. Uh, He certainly played more than 12 minutes on Tuesday night in round two. 14 points, 12 rebounds, five of those offensive, and eight blocks for Walker Kessler. Four steals to go with that as well in 28 minutes. And one of the things we talked about in relation to Walker Kessler's presence there in the paint for Auburn, especially on the defensive end, was points in the paint. How would that work out? Alabama needed to be competitive in that area because Auburn very much a downhill driving basketball team on the offensive end, whether you're talking about Katie Johnson, whether you're talking about Wendell Green Jr., uh, they like to get the basketball going towards the rim, and Auburn was able to do that in this game to the tune of a 52-22 to advantage. So Auburn plus 30 in the paint. Kessler, in his four time, he was plus 13, and even his backup, Dylan Cardwell, was plus 20 and plus minus. So Cardwell had eight points in support of Kessler to go along with eight rebounds in 18 minutes. And they even played, Auburn did, the two bigs together on the back end of a zone in the second half with the intent of running a guy like Jaden Shackelford off the uh, three-point line and sending him and others into a defense consisting on the back end of Kessler and at times Dylan Cardwell as well. One of the other predictions I had for this game. The two teams will combine for no fewer than 15 block shots. They ended up 
exactly Alabama and Auburn combining for 15 block shots. Kessler had more than half of that total on his own. Alabama post Charles Bediaco and Noah Gurley accounted for all of UA's block production with three and two rejections respectively. And again, with as difficult as it was going to be in finishing at the rim, you figured Alabama needed to be on the right side of threes. And if I told you going into this game, look, Alabama's going to make 14 threes, you would have probably wagered quite a bit on this game being closer than the 19-point difference that it finished at. But Alabama gets up 37 threes in the game, making a season-high 14. First time in SEC play this season for Alabama that the Crimson Tide finishes with double-digit makes in a game. Shackelford with 26 points, 6 of 15 shooting. He was 5 of 11 from 3, 9 of 10 from the free throw line. Javon Quinterly really came on there in the second half, helped Alabama close that deficit, get it to a two-point game. He had 16 of his 20 in the game. After the break, just 7 of 21 from the field, and his three-point struggles uh, certainly continued as well. Two of eight from three from Javon. So Alabama as a team shoots 38% from three, makes 14. And again, you'd have felt good about the Crimson Tide's chances with that scenario. But once again, points in the paint, decidedly Auburn's way. Bench points, decidedly Auburn's way. Fast break points, decidedly in the favor of the Tigers. So even when Alabama made that run to cut it to two in the second half, Auburn still managed to close the game with an edge of 43-26 to the rest of the way to complete the regular season sweep. The third and final prediction we had for this game going in, there were going to be no breathers when the two teams went to the bench, especially on the ball. We touched on the prowess of these reserve point guards in J.D. Davison for Alabama, Green for Auburn. Davison was coming off a strong performance against Baylor while Green had gone for 19 against Alabama the last time these teams met. But, boy, it was Green on Tuesday night who was devastatingly effective. He scored 23 points, handed out six assists, pulled down eight rebounds. Meanwhile, J.D. Davison scoreless on the night on 0 of 5 shooting. He did have four assists, and Noah Gurley helped out off the bench with 11 points. But the Auburn bench outscored Alabama's by 24 points. So, And again, Alabama's inability to stop the ball on the defensive end was the biggest problem it had Tuesday night. You give up 52 points in the paint, and I'm not sure Alabama was able to draw a single charge in the game. Now, if you give up 52 points in the paint, somebody's got to start at least trying to take some charges. Anyway... It's on to the next for Alabama, and speaking of the next, doesn't get any easier on Saturday night as the Kentucky Wildcats will visit Tuscaloosa. Kentucky at 17-4 overall, 6-2 in the league. The Wildcats set to host Vanderbilt later on Wednesday night. Link, length, girth, skill. You've got Oscar Shibwe. The West Virginia transfer who's been outstanding for Kentucky this season. Ty Ty Washington, Severe Wheeler out on the perimeter. You know, I look at Kentucky right now. This isn't a team that is, say, where Auburn is in terms of completeness. Uh, But it looks to be Kentucky does on its way to getting there, especially after hammering 
Kansas last Saturday night in Lawrence. A very impressive performance for the Wildcats. So John Calipari brings the fifth-ranked Kentucky Wildcats to Tuscaloosa. It is a Saturday night game, so I would think that big blue presence going to try to take over a good bit the Coleman Coliseum. As far as the SEC standings as they sit right now, Auburn really reminiscent of Alabama a year ago at 9-0 and in the league and very much in control of the top spot. Then you've got Kentucky in second place with that loss to Auburn a couple Saturdays ago, followed by Tennessee at 6-3 and in the league, Arkansas and Mississippi State at 5-3, and and then you got a cluster of 4-5 and teams in LSU, Texas A&M, Alabama, and South Carolina. LSU, Texas A&M, Alabama all lost on uh, – Tuesday night. As far as net rankings are concerned, UA still with a very healthy ranking of 22 uh, in the net rankings. Six and five record against quad one teams, so still in very good shape where the NCAA tournament is concerned. At some point, though, you got to start winning some league games, especially with losses to the league's two worst teams in Missouri and Georgia. Missouri and Georgia have a combined three SEC wins to this point. Two of those against the Alabama Crimson Tide. After Kentucky, Alabama goes to Ole Miss next Wednesday. Then you get home games with Arkansas and Mississippi State. So really, really no gimmies on the horizon. Let's shift gears and let's get into some football recruiting talk. And, you know, it's just not the same that first Wednesday in February these days, is it? With so much of the heavy lifting, especially by programs like Alabama, during the early period there in mid Second half of December, uh, just not a lot of juice when it comes to that first Wednesday in February. But there was some news for the Crimson Tide on this Wednesday as Danny Lewis, a tight end from New Iberia, Louisiana, announced that he would be, in fact, attending the University of Alabama. Lewis chooses UA over home state LSU. Florida also very much in the mix for Danny Lewis. And you watch him on tape, and he's another one of these 6'4"-ish tight ends at the high school level that you see flexed out. Size is too much for opposing defensive backs on 50-50 chances at the prep level. Danny Lewis right now doesn't look like a guy that's going to run away from people, a la Brock Bowers, but he does offer versatility in the ways of what is asked of today's tight ends. Does a nice job as a blocker in line. Again, looks to be a natural sort of instinctive catcher of the football. And I know you hear that and you say, well, what's so tough about some of these guys? They let the ball get in their body. They're body catchers. It just doesn't come natural to them or it takes a lot of time to get them to a point where it is at least semi-natural to catch and attack the football with their hands. But you see some of that from Danny Lewis, some good one-handed stuff on his tape as well. And with Jalil Billingsley moving on to Texas and IMG target Jalil Skinner opting for Miami in the early period. And that was a little bit of a double whammy with Skinner because he's also an early enrollee. You would have already had him on campus. You've got Cameron Latou at the top of the list at tight end right now. Kendall Randolph in the last few weeks has announced or made it known that he will make use of his super senior year of eligibility. So, He gives you some insurance at the position, although he may be needed along the offensive line with the losses Alabama is going to look to to deal with up front. Uh, Robbie Ooch, you saw as a true freshman, did some nice things. And then in this 2022 class to go along with Lewis, Amari Nyblock, who projects as a summer enrollee, and also Elijah Brown, who 
is already enrolled at Alabama, and you put those guys with Danny Lewis and got some pretty good numbers. Major Tennyson has had the opportunity, sort of like Kendall Randolph, to come back for another year. Haven't heard anything definitive from Major in any direction that he might be headed. He's been unavailable, unavailable, been injured pretty much throughout his time at Alabama. But you look at this cycle from 10,000 feet, and wow, what about Texas A&M? Clear-cut top class in the nation, and on paper anyway, looks to be the highest-ranked recruiting class in the recruiting ranking era. So just a monster class for Jimbo Fisher in the Texas A&M Aggies. Now, there's a lot of talk about how A&M may have gone about this with an emphasis on NIL money. You heard from Nick Saban on Tuesday. Saban with some poignant comments on the topic, and maybe we'll get a few more of those from him coming up later this afternoon. Nick Saban's scheduled to meet with the media on this Wednesday at 4 p.m. Central. You know, if A&M's really throwing around those type of deals for players, I don't. it doesn't surprise me. After all, A&M is paying a coach $9 million a year to go 8-4, and four, which is what Jimbo Fisher did in 2021. So what's to stop a program flush with cash and boosters and ties to corporations and things like that from anteing up from a football perspective? What's to stop A&M from establishing what is really, if we're being honest, more of a payroll than anything else that is maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of Eight figures for all we know. We'll see how it all plays out. All of this sounds good, looks good on paper, but if it is, in fact, something that comes to fruition and we find out this is, in fact, what is exactly going on at Texas A&M, we'll see how Jimbo Fisher manages it all. You know, you look at some of the guys who got big NIL money just last summer, and are they still, even at the same program, six, seven months later? Look at Spencer Rattler. Look at Quinn Ewers. You know, previously of Oklahoma and Ohio State, respectively. And it doesn't sound like Nick Saban is headed in this direction, that there's a lot of talk about as far as NIL deals being a part of the recruiting process moving forward. But we also know Nick Saban will adjust and adapt as needed. So I would never say never, but you know, yes, you know, players at Alabama will have deals. They will have NIL deals. We've already seen it with Bryce Young, seen it with a lot of players at Alabama since this went in. But as far as dangling deals in front of prospects, I don't envision that for Alabama in the foreseeable future. And I'll tell you why. I don't think Nick Saban is a big fan of the kind of culture that goes along with that kind of approach in terms of what it could bring back to your program as a whole. If you're the head coach and you're offering NIL deals on the recruiting trail, to me that means you have to be in the process, very much in the process, of administering those deals from start to finish. In other words, if a player isn't happy with his deal, who do you think he's going to come to? Or who is he going to go to? He's going to go to you. Because if that's the approach you used on the recruiting trail, you're the point person for him. You're essentially like a coach slash agent at this point. So now, in addition to trying to keep guys happy in the areas of playing time and convincing them simultaneously that, you know what, you still need to put in the work to continue to develop on the field while also taking care of your academic 
obligations. As a coach, you're essentially a go-between, or again, even like an agent, on some of these deals. Maybe not from the coach's viewpoint, that's not how they're going to look at themselves, but all that matters is from the player's perspective and how they envision the setup for some of these deals. Also on the recruiting trail on Wednesday, Alabama was involved with Jalen Farmer, an offensive lineman from Covington, Georgia. Farmer had been committed to the Florida Gators throughout the process, and he followed through on Wednesday and remained in place with the Gators in their 2022 Hall. All right, so let's get into some football team news and notes of particular interest. As we reported over the weekend, Eric Wolford, previously of the University of Kentucky, has joined the Alabama staff as the successor to Doug Marone as the Crimson Tide's offensive line coach. Wolford certainly with some recent history in the Southeastern Conference, having worked at South Carolina before overseeing Kentucky's offensive line during the 2021 season. He also has some previous head coaching experience on the FCS level at Youngstown State. Now, as far as Doug Marone is concerned, according to those familiar with his situation, Marone just didn't feel like college coaching was a good fit for him at this point in his career. And you got to remember, the last time Doug Marone, prior to Alabama, coached on the college level was a decade ago. And entirely different dynamics in play now, with an emphasis on the transfer portal. So, in coming down from the NFL, it may have been a little bit of a shock to Marone's system in a way he hadn't entirely counted on in terms of the transfer portal and how you can coach guys moving forward. Because the accessibility to the portal and the ability to move far more freely than prior to the one-time exception coming into existence. It's a different different deal, certainly, than it was uh, 10 years ago. And according to our source, Marone is considering everything from a return to the NFL. You've seen him linked to maybe staffs that are forming in Denver and other places. Uh, dominoes are still falling, so we won't be surprised if he doesn't. If he does in, ends up back in the league, if he doesn't, it could be Uh, Doug Marone could take some time off altogether. And the Bill O'Brien watch in connection with Doug Marone continues at Alabama. Of course, with the New England Patriots and Josh McDaniels off to Vegas as the head coach of the Raiders. Sensible to consider O'Brien as a returnee, maybe, to Bill Belichick's staff up in Foxborough, uh, considering their previous relation and time together up there with the New England Patriots. If it plays out that way, I still think positional development at quarterback and the offensive line will be a primary concern. Obviously, with the offensive line, you've got to figure out the two tackle spots. And where the offensive coordinator quarterback position is concerned, there's still a chance, as good as he was in 2021, you can certainly continue to elevate the play of Bryce Young. But more importantly... You're going to have to get the next guy ready because if everything goes according to plan, Bryce has another big year, he's off to the NFL following the 2022 season, you're going to have to have that next guy ready as early as 2023. That will certainly rank very high on the to-do list of Bill O'Brien, or if it's not Bill O'Brien, 
his potential successor. Speaking of NFL possibilities, Alabama with a couple of senior bowl participants this week in Phil Mathis, the defensive lineman, Brian Robinson, the running back. You look at some other guys that will be a part of the 2022 NFL draft with Alabama ties. You've got three and outs, and then you've got some injured guys as well. Jamison Williams, of course, injured. Evan Neal, a three and out. Christian Harris, a three and out. John Mechie, a three and out. He, too, is injured dealing with a knee situation like Jamison Williams. So you didn't have really the pool of possible Senior Bowl participants this year based on eligibility that you've had in a lot of years. Josh Job, even, uh, if he had been considered, it was coming off an injury that he had taken care of during the month of December. Jalen Armour Davis, wondered a little bit about him because uh, by the rule, as a graduate, he would qualify in terms of eligibility for the Senior Bowl. But Mobile guy as well. Uh, but we're not seeing Jalen Armour Davis this week down in Mobile. Phil Mathis, Going to be very interesting to watch Federian go through the draft process because he probably goes into it somewhere around a third or fourth round pick. But given the positional value of the the spot he mans, um, you know, and he's got production. He's got documented production against some of the very best competition in college football. I think there's maybe concern about exactly where he fits. Uh, he's not a nose tackle in the National Football League, so is he really a three-tech is he a potentially productive three-tech uh, at tackle in a 4-3 scheme? Can he play end in more of a 3-4 approach? Um, you know, I think regardless with Fedarian, if he goes first round, second round, I think probably his ceiling is early second, maybe push for the late first. Uh, Fedarian reminds me of some guys we've seen at Alabama that maybe go a little bit later, but then 10 years from now, you look up and Fedarian Mathis is still in the National Football League, kind of like Damian Square. Damian Square's been that kind of guy from Alabama uh, in the NFL. I believe Damian was a fifth-round pick way back, like 2013, still playing in the National Football League. Brian Robinson, you know, you wonder how much he'll be able to impress scouts this week. And really, you wonder how much he needs to. I mean, because with Brian, there just aren't really any secrets, especially after the 2021 season. He got plenty of opportunities, plenty of touches, uh, plenty of tape against, again, like Mathis, some of the very best teams in college football. And, you know, there's not a lot of mystery to Brian Robinson. He's a one-cut runner. I'll be interested to see what he runs in terms of the combine, maybe his pro day where the 40 and also his shuttle uh, runs. Uh, But he's a physical guy. He's a willing guy in pass protection, so you like those attributes. Um, But he's also not a guy that's going to average five yards per carry. Not many guys do. Really, any guys average five yards per carry in the NFL. If you're doing right around four, four plus, you're doing it pretty good in the Sunday game. But again, not a lot of intrigue with Brian if I'm an NFL team. I know exactly what I'm getting. I like what I'm getting. I just don't know between the position he plays uh, and his ceiling if – I'm going to maybe take him in the first three rounds. We'll see. Hope both those guys find the path to the NFL uh, to be exactly what they hope for. All right, so we're going to wrap up a Wednesday edition of the Bama Online Podcast by venturing back into our position room rankings 
for Nick Saban's six national championship teams at the University of Alabama previously. Last week, we did the inside linebackers. And to get this thing going, a few weeks ago, we did the running back position. So you can find those in our archives. Anywhere you consume podcasts, you're going to find the Bama online pod. And it is quarterbacks this time around. And really, the first three, maybe even four of these offenses, these quarterback rooms we're going to talk about, very running back-centric offenses. And going through this really underscores the different ways in which Nick Saban has won national championships at Alabama. And what we'll do is we'll start at six, work our way to one. And it was kind of tough here with these first two or three, again, because the run game, they were so run heavy, never more so really than in 2015 when Derrick Henry had nearly 400 carries for 2,100 yards. But Jake Coker and that 2015 quarterback room will get us going. Jake passed for 3,100 yards, 21 touchdowns, and eight interceptions. Had a couple of defining runs, tough runs that season. The first one, or two really, against Ole Miss, established himself, sent a clear message. Didn't start the Ole Miss game, as you recall. Cooper Bateman did. That one still draws a, uh, a big sigh, a collective sigh from the Alabama fan base, ended up being a second straight loss to Hugh Freeze and the Ole Miss Rebels in that one. But Jake, uh, coming off the bench against Ole Miss, showed that sort of toughness that wins over not only a coaching staff, but his teammates as well. And then against Clemson late in that win in Glendale, was able to convert for a first down inside the Clemson five, also came up clutch throwing the football against the Tigers. There was couple of stretches in that game where you felt like Alabama's in a pretty good bit of peril here. Uh, and in one particular instance, Coker delivered an absolute dime down the right sideline to Ardarius Stewart. That throw has always stuck with me uh, as one of the bigger plays of Jake Coker's long season as a starting quarterback at Alabama. That room you also had, Cooper Bateman, threw for 291 yards in 2015. One touchdown, two interceptions, Alec Morris, Blake Barnett, you know, Hertz came in, Jalen Hurts came in the next season and took over as a true freshman. We'll get into some of that a little bit later in the segment as well. Number five, I went 2009 with Greg McElroy, star Jackson, A.J. McCarron, Greg in 2009, 2,500 passing yards, 17 touchdowns, four interceptions. Now, A.J. McCarron redshirted in 2009, so it was star Jackson that you would see in some mop-up situations and Starr passed for 116 yards before moving on from the Alabama program. There was a lot of talk at the end of that 2009 season that if something were to have happened to Greg where he was going to be out for an extended period, say multiple games, that it actually would have been McCarron that the staff would have turned to over Star Jackson. But the hope was to keep Greg as healthy as possible and be able to redshirt AJ, and they were able to do all that while going 14-0 and and winning a BCS National Championship. You know, Greg had some stretches in 2009 where it was, it was a little bit tough. You know, going into the LSU game in Tuscaloosa that season, even into that game, uh, that passing game was really struggling. They throw it out the quick smoke screen to Julio, 
against LSU, and he's able to house it from nearly 80 yards away, and that seemed to spark Greg pretty good. Greg also came up big in 2009, of course, in the comeback win uh, over the Auburn Tigers on the road, was huge in the win in the SEC championship game over Florida. Uh, Not so much in the national championship game. I think Greg's gone on record about having some rib issues uh, going into that game. But we'll go 2009 Alabama quarterback room at number five. Number four, we're going to go 2011 with A.J. McCarron passing for 2,600 in 34 yards, 16 touchdowns, and five interceptions. As you probably recall, Alabama opened that season against Kent State. And it really wasn't until the Crimson Tide the next week went to Penn State for the road game in Happy Valley that you felt like, yeah, this is A.J. McCarron's job because Philip Sims was also a part of that equation. Very talented passer. But it was A.J. from wire to wire at Penn State in that win. Again, a very running back-centric offense because Trent Richardson went on to win the Doak Walker Award. Actually had Heisman Trophy caliber type numbers. But Philip Sims also contributed 163 passing yards, no touchdowns, two interceptions, and it was off to the University of Virginia for Phillip following that 2011 season. Number three, I'm going to go 2012 with A.J. Once again, the only guy on this list with back-to-back are multiple crowns. A.J. McCarron, 2,933 yards. I'm talking about in terms of starters, you know, we've had some guys that have been backups and been a part of two national championship teams and uh, things like that. But as far as starters go, uh, 2012, McCarron averaged 9.3 per attempt, 30 touchdown passes for A.J. And this is when you started to see some of that mixed in more with the stat lines that you had seen previously from, say, Greg, John Parker, Wilson. This was, in 2012, a more explosive and dynamic Alabama offense. You had two great running backs, too, though. I mean, it's not like you you totally got away from the run because Eddie Lacy, T.J. Yeldon, both were 1,000-yard guys in 2012, but A.J. was very good with Amari Cooper coming on board as a true freshman, had the big catch against Georgia on the deep ball. Blake Sims also working in support of A.J. McCarron in 2012, passed for 70 yards, Ran for 187 more with a couple of touchdowns. You also had Philip Philip Ely in that mix before uh, Philip moved on to the MAC as a transfer. Number two, I'm going 2020 Mac Jones. This is where it got tough. These last two quarterback rooms, boy, you talk about some some dudes. Mac Jones, 4,500 passing yards in 2020, averaged 11.2 yards per attempt, 41 touchdowns, four interceptions. Bryce Young in limited opportunities, 156 passing yards, and a touchdown. So kind of a tough call when you look at these final two, but I had to go with 2017 at number one. Jalen, more of a run threat in 2017, passed for a little over 2,000 yards, 17 touchdowns, just one interception. He ran for 855 yards and eight touchdowns. And then, of course, Tua is a true freshman, just 636 passing yards, but immortal for the second-half comeback in the national championship game win over the University of Georgia. And, oh, by the way, you just happen to be redshirting Mac Jones during that 2017 season. So that's how I stack them up. 
six to one quarterback rooms for Nick Saban national championship teams at Alabama. I go 2015 six, 2009 five. Fourth, I have 2011. 2012 checks in third. 2020 at two and 2017 at one. As we've done with the inside linebackers and the running backs, we'll talk some about the non-national championship rooms that Alabama has had at the quarterback position. And really, if you're going to talk 2017 as your number one national championship quarterback room, you got to talk about 2018 among the teams that didn't win it all. Three future NFL starters in that 2018 room just like there were in 2017 with Jalen to uh, and Mac Jones could have been a fourth. I mean, if you consider Gardner Minshew's time in Jacksonville and how he became the starter in Jacksonville, he could have had four in that room because Gardner Minshew looked like he was headed to Alabama for a while there before he eventually settled on Washington State and a season with Mike Leach that certainly proved beneficial for Gardner. But 2018 would have to be right there at the top of the non-national championship list. 2019, you had Tua and Mac. You know, and Mac getting that experience at the expense of Tua's injury certainly, I think, helped his development and served as a sort of springboard for Mac going into 2020 because it wasn't just the hip injury against Mississippi State, as you'll recall. Tua had the ankle injury against Tennessee. Mack was forced into action for a good bit of that game, got a start against Arkansas. Uh, and then, of course, after the hip injury, it was Auburn and the bowl game for Mac Jones. 2016 quarterback room, you know, Jalen took over, as you recall, in that season opener at Jerry World uh, from Blake Barnett in the win over Southern California. Barnett uh, subsequently transferred out, and it was Jalen's job really for the better part of two, well, nearly three seasons, 2016, uh, well, two seasons, 2016, 2017, 2013 quarterback room, A.J. threw for 3,000 yards, 28 touchdowns, seven interceptions. Of course, A.J. was a kick six away from playing for a third straight national championship as Alabama's starting quarterback. Blake Sims was the backup in 2013 felt like that situation was more organizational than a glimpse into next season but in 2014 we would see Blake Sims pass for nearly 3,500 yards and 28 touchdowns in year one under Lane Kiffin as the offensive coordinator for the Crimson Tide Blake also had 350 rushing yards 2014 with seven more touchdowns so 35 total touchdowns accounted for by Blake Sims in 2014. 2010, GMAC in terms of yardage, this was kind of the outlier for a Nick Saban offense back in the day because Alabama, even with Mark Ingram and Trent Richardson and Eddie Lacy, one of the most anemic run games, if not the most anemic, that Nick Saban has had in Alabama was with those three running backs. So Moore was put on Greg McElroy and Julio Jones, and they responded both with big years. You had Darius Hanks working at the wide receiver position back in 2010. Um, so that's kind of how that played out. AJ, in his first year on the field in 2010, threw for 389 yards and three touchdowns. And of course, you'll recall late in that forgettable Iron Bowl loss in Tuscaloosa to the Tigers, uh, it was AJ who had to come on late. Because GMAC got uh, 
He got pretty much knocked out late in that game. We won't talk about that anymore. 2008, John Parker Wilson, 2,273 passing yards, 10 touchdowns, 8 interceptions. Julio Jones is a true freshman in 2008, had nearly one half of Alabama's receiving yards with 924. So it was actually the years that sandwiched the national championship season where Julio did most of his damage from a statistical standpoint. But Alabama's second leading receiver in 2008, can you guess who that is without looking? I bet you can't. Alabama's second leading receiver in 2008 was tight end Nick Walker. You had Mike McCoy, the Mississippian, up next. So there you go. Some quarterback room talk in relation to Alabama's six national championship teams under Nick Saban. It's been a lot of fun on the Wednesday edition of the Bama Online Podcast. Well, it has been for me anyway. I hope it's been fairly enjoyable for you. No, we got a lot of coverage for you there at BamaOnline.com. It is the late national signing date. Um, We'll do what we can to keep you interested in that. It's uh, taking a bit of a hit with the early signing period, but always something going on on that front. Certainly coaching news as it happens, player news as it happens, men's basketball as it prepares for a huge conference matchup in Tuscaloosa against the Kentucky Wildcats on Saturday night. We're going to have all that covered for you at BamaOnline.com. Travis Ryder thanking you once again for joining us here on the Bama Online Podcast. Until next time, so long, everybody.